Yeah. And I think that's a huge thing, like giving yourself that permission and knowing like, it's okay. On Thanksgiving this year, we decided already we're having pizza and watching a movie. Welcome to Complex Conversations brought to you by the Blue Bee Collective. I'm your host, Chastity Short, and I'm so glad you're here. Complex Conversations and the Blue Bee Collective exist to provide education, advocacy, and empowerment to families living lives with medically complex children. Today, we are joined by author, podcast host, medical mom, and mom of loss, Jessica Fine. And we're going to be discussing surviving the holidays after the loss of a child. We'll also be talking about all sorts of other juicy, relatable topics. So please enjoy the show. And remember, if you're here, you belong. All right. Welcome, Jessica. I'm so happy to have you. I've been devouring all of your stuff that you have, your articles and your Instagram and everything. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Tell us uh, just a small like kind of synopsis. Who are you? What are, what's the work you're doing? Uh, give us a little history. Okay. I am mom of three. Uh, my middle daughter, Dahlia, passed away two years, almost two years ago, one week after her 17th birthday from an ultra rare disease called Murph syndrome, which is a mitochondrial disease. But going back, all three of my kids, my husband and I adopted from Guatemala. They were not biologically related, which I bring up only because when we talk about genetic diseases, that's always something that we consider, right? Is it something mm -hmm. that more than one person in the family has? So we brought Dahlia home from Guatemala when she was six months old and she was diagnosed at five. And we can surely get into that if you want to talk about it, but um, Murph syndrome and many mitochondrial diseases are progressive. So being diagnosed at that young age, we were in this kind of strange situation where Dahlia was developing and learning and growing and also losing as the disease progressed. Mm -hmm. And um, it was an insidious horrible disease that really dramatically changed every single thing about our lives when she turned nine. And we lived for eight years in a very, very high stakes situation with round the clock care. And she was an eyes on patient and um, it was intense. And there was, yeah. that was for eight years. When I was reading that, I felt like, oh, like, because my son lived for eight years, but he was from basically from when he was born, he was kind of in that situation, you know, so like with the yeah. trach and the ventilator and the nurses and that high acuity. And so I felt like, oh, we're kind of that same time frame. I mean, you had the years before it um, where you were watching the decline, right. but from that high acuity standpoint, and that's something, you know, that that'll, that'll give you some trauma having always that'll kind give of you a little bit of trauma, yeah. maybe a little bit of trauma, a little, little colorful. You know, you wake up and you got a nurse there, but you think, well, are they still breathing? And you run and you check and it's, it's not something. Yeah, and also, by the way, you know, I think people hear around the clock nursing and they think, OK, well, you have people to help you all the time. And I, I think what people might not understand and what I for sure didn't understand that a need for round the clock nursing does not mean that you actually have round the clock nursing. I mean, most people know there's this huge nursing shortage, which is one issue, and then finding nurses who are equipped to treat pediatric trach ventilator patients is really tough. And then keeping nurses, I mean, there's just so many aspects of it. And then having mm -hmm. those nurses in your home all the time. So 
while that's like definitely a blessing and a curse, right? Having people around all the time who are not part of your family. So we were so grateful to be quote unquote given round the clock nursing, but the reality looked nothing like what we imagined it would in any, in any way, shape or form. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I completely relate to that. We had 16 hour a day nursing. We, we didn't get round the clock. And I remember being like, really upset at that because I was so overwhelmed. We had three little kids and then we had Dominic, who is the one on the, yes. the ventilator and talking to my pulmonologist and be like, what am I supposed to do with all the other kids? And she was like, hire a babysitter. And I was so mad at her. And I was like, what? But as yeah. I grew, I was so relieved to have that little bit of respite of like, okay, no one's watching. And the nurses weren't watching me and judging me, but you always feel like Someone's judging every. So I had like the cleanest house in Texas yes. because all I did was clean because I felt so much pressure because there was always somebody there, quote unquote, judging it's me. so true. And we weren't given round the clock. It was just that Dahlia needed round the clock. So we um, chose to do eight hours. However, we did it. We did, you know, she went to school with a with a nurse and then we had the nurse overnight in theory, but she was eyes on as I'm sure your son was. And so if we didn't have a nurse overnight, one of us was staying in her room overnight. I mean, she couldn't be alone for a second. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, help was same thing. Yeah. It was exactly like that. Or it's like, I would sleep on a pallet on the floor and yeah. uh, you know, you, you, I mean, I still, I sleep better now, but my sensors are so like in tune to every sound you, you know, a change in breathing pattern, I'm awake. And so really you're not sleeping. You're just kind of like in this weird slumber, dreamy state. But at the same time, you're rehearsing, like, what am I going to do? I remember we were on vacation once. We didn't go on vacation much, but my parents would rent a house for the whole family to go to every summer for like a week. And so we went there once and we had his vent and it had the water. Did you guys have the water heater that you filled up the water yep, on the vent? Okay. Yeah. And so- I had the water heater. Anyway, I put them on this cot and somehow in the night, the water heater got knocked over. And in the moment, the water from when the moment the water heater got knocked over, I woke up in like that two second. And I, I, I feel like I'm Superman, right? Because like, how do you, you have these reactions? And I like reach <laughs> over, I grab his vent, I pop it off his trach. And like the moment I do it, the water sprays everywhere. And I'm like, he, I, I just saved his life. Like he would have all that would have went in his lungs, but it's like that, like, that's how well you sleep. Like I'm ready in a moment second. And also you do save your kid's life. Like, you know, on the regular, I, I remember there would be days when I, cause I worked uh, outside of the home as well at a corporate job this whole time. So I would get to work. It would be like eight 30 and people would be like, oh, you know, couldn't get my kid to the bus. And I'm like, I saved my daughter's life. You know, like I had to do an emergency trade change. It's funny. But I didn't even bother because you know what? Nobody would even get it. And that's no. part of it. That's, I think, part of what's so isolating. It's like, you know inside what you've already done. But like people don't even know what a trach is, let alone what it means to do an emergency trach change, you know? Right, right. If you start talking about how they threw a plug and oh, yeah. they, went, they went dusky and it, it, all the alarms are beeping, you know, and like working under that situation, it's like, you just, you might as well just don't even talk about it because- You might as well just, and that's why I think it's right. so amazing to find other people who do understand, you know? I wish we oh, knew absolutely. each other when our kids were here because I bet we could have really, we could have really had a lot to talk about. I know, or even now though, having this lived experience and not having- a lot of other people to share it with. We're like, you can talk to people and they could 
sympathize, but they don't really know, you know, like no one's ever woken up and caught your kid from drowning. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? But except other people yes. like you. And it's like, right. you get it. Yeah. Oh my, yeah. Woo. Well, maybe wherever you live, maybe I'll just come up there. <laughs> we can go eat some awesome. bagels. And... I'm in Boston. I'm outside of Boston. <laughs> oh, I've never been to Boston. I'm such a Texas well, girl. You have we a don't place really to leave. stay if you ever come. <laughs> so one of the things that you write a lot, because you're an author, you've written, yeah. uh, you've written two books. One's out and one is about to come out. Is that right? In 2024? It is right. And I, I took, you know, a few decades hiatus between the two books. So we don't really need to talk about the first one. I wrote that when okay. I was in my 20s. Um, but the second one is really about this journey that we're talking about, and um, it's called Breathtaking, uh, a memoir of family, dreams, and broken genes. And it starts with actually um, our journey to becoming a family and our time in Guatemala and bringing our kids home and building a family, and then our journey with Dahlia. I can't wait to read it. And I love, I made the... After researching you for quite a long time, I finally made the connection between your love for dahlias. Am I saying that right? The flowers? Yes. yes. And, and I will tell your daughter. you that like, oh. our, my love for the name Dahlia preceded my love for the flower Dahlia. And I am such a huge, huge Dahlia flower fan now. I think it's like the most amazing flower. But the way we got into Dahlia's the flower was really incredible because what happened was a colleague of my husband uh, came over for Shiva. In case your listeners don't know, Shiva is the week in, the, in Judaism, the week following somebody's death, you sit Shiva, it's called. So people come by and visit the grievers. And a colleague came by and he really spent mo most of the time kind of walking around our house. And, you know, we didn't really notice, we were preoccupied, but what he was doing was looking for an area where he could plant a dahlia garden for us. And what he did was a couple months later, he came by one day with a truck and he spent the whole day planting a really big dahlia garden for us. And it's now become something that my my husband really has become quite expert on. And we've it's just expanded. And it's kind of amazing. But I love what he did because it was just this like beautiful way of acknowledging and quietly doing something and not saying, let me know if there's anything I can do and all those things that you're just like, I don't know what you could possibly ever do. You know, he did something that was just so generous and has really been, been a real gift to us because now of course our house is always in the season filled with just this incredible flower that makes us think of our girl. That's probably the most beautiful thing I've ever heard someone do for a griever because yeah, you're right. Let me know what I can do. And you're like, what can you do for this? There's nothing to do. But just that not asking, going and just planting something beautiful. But, um, yeah. See, the, the last Christmas season that we had. So my son was in the ICU. He's very, very sick. This his last admission. And his pulmonologist, I loved her, the one who gave me the 16 hours that I was mad at. I She ended <laughs> up being my favorite physician. And she was just like, this is the way it is. I always said, I would hate to be her medical student, but I love to be her patient <laughs> because she was very intimidating. But um, we were in the ICU and I said, we want to go home for his last Christmas because it, no one had said it, but everyone knew this was it. Mm. 
And she said, we don't send kids this sick home. And I said, I want to go home for his last Christmas. And she said, let me see what we could do. And so a few days later we were home and I remember being at home and a friend coming over and planting, I don't even know what they're called, but planting these bulbs. And every year it, it, here, it doesn't really snow. It'll snow or ice like once a year. And every time it snows or ice, these beautiful flowers come up covered with the, the white from the snow or ice. And it's really beautiful. Um, just a few, but it, doing something like that, I feel like is so beautiful. Yeah. Other people came and they raked our leaves. And other people came, put up Christmas lights. You know, it was just like these beautiful acts of service that that's right. what the people need. If you're wondering how to support a grieving person, that's how you do it. Absolutely. I, I have another thing that meant a lot to us that if you're wondering how to support a grieving person, I feel like people really wrap their arms around my husband and me. And we had two other kids and they were suffering. And it was interesting to me that not many people reached out to them personally. And so the people who did, it made such a huge difference. You know, when they would get something a, a, a cousin of my husband's who we don't have much of a relationship with at all, sent each of them a package and it had a cozy throw and, you know, nice furry socks, whatever it was. I don't even remember all the things, but it was something just for them. And I feel like acknowledging the siblings is also a really meaningful thing to do because, absolutely, you know, they can get real lost in this whole thing. Well, they you know, do because the focus yeah. is on mainly the mother. It's on the mother, the father, the father second. Yeah, yeah. My, and my then, sister died actually, and oh. I will never forget. I was thirty. No, excuse me. She was thirty. I was twenty-seven, and it was that night. And she was my best friend, and she died suddenly. And that night, my mother's friend came to me and said, "You need to take care of your mother now." And, I, and at 27, so I wasn't even young, but I remember looking at her and being so shocked, like, what do you mean? You know, is it my mother going to be taking care of me? Right. Mm -hmm. Because that's what we're accustomed to. But the idea is this is the, the grief is on the mother or the parents. And mm -hmm. so that was just such a clear kind of message to me that as a sibling, it was not going to be the thing people were thinking about. And in fact, you know, there isn't even as much literature out there about sibling loss. There is a lot about, there's so much about losing your parents, obviously, because that's the thing that most people can relate to. And you can find things about losing a child, but there wasn't much, at least then, and, and surely I've looked since then, and there's not nearly enough about sibling loss. It's true. They're, they're the forgotten ones. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, when, so when my son died, the kids were, how old were they? We had one going into his freshman year in high school and then the other ones just kind of staggered down, you know, and I think there is definitely a void there of, okay, one, you're going into your tumultuous teenage years that everyone's going to have a crazy time anyway, right? Uh, paired on top of having lost a sibling and the house yeah. being upside down and your parents being upside down and not knowing how to deal with it. That's definitely something that, is a big, uh, I don't know if it's an oversight, but I think people just don't think about it. You know, maybe they just, kids are, kids are resilient, right? That's what they say. Kids right, are resilient. Right. Not always. <laughs> Not Definitely always. More of that. And they handle it so differently. I mean, 
as I said, Dahlia was our middle and our eldest and our youngest, who was also in high school, starting high school at that time, handled it so different from each other. But, you know, we were talking about how there's all these people in the house and the nurses. And one of the things that I realized afterwards is the other kids had become close with all these people who were in our house all the time. You know, the nurses became part of our family and the, you know, all the people, the PCAs and just everybody who was here all the time became part of our other kids' reality, part of their day-to-day. And then like that, it's not only that their sister was gone, but all these other people who they were used to having around were gone. Absolutely. Well, my youngest was born, let's see, he's eight now. So, you know, he was five, I think, when Dominic died. But he was born into this situation. And so he never knew a time without a nurse there or therapist coming in or going to doctor's appointments and seeing the doctors. And then, yeah, absolutely. It's like, not only is your sibling gone or your child gone, but all your friends are gone, you know, because as parents, I mean, I worked, but I worked part time. So I wasn't gone all day. So I formed these really close relationships with these nurses that I would say they were some of my very closest friends And, and the kids, you know, Colby, the little one, he was raised with them. I mean, they would, if I would be doing something and he would need something, the nurse would scoop them up and go help because they're in your home. It's different than being in a hospital, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, everybody's gone. And you're like, everybody's this is, gone. everyone's gone. And, and you know, yeah, it's, it's such a strange about, thing. It is. It is so strange. And and what you said about them becoming your closest friends. So for us, we got to the point with Dahlia where we needed two people to take care of her. So if we were not home, we would need a nurse plus one. So we would have like a PCA or a babysitter. And part of that, of course, was the nurses couldn't be responsible for the other kids. So when the other kids were young, if we, if my husband and I wanted to go out to dinner, we needed a nurse for Dahlia and then a babysitter for all of them. Mm-hmm. And then as Dahlia got older, it, you know, it was a two-person lift. And so we needed to have those two people. So we, so first of all, the nurses and the babysitters became really close. They still are all really close, but I realized that community of people were the only people who really knew what it was like. They were like front row to the, you know, drama that was our life. And Mm -hmm. they were the only people who really knew and saw it. And it was funny. One of Dahlia's nurses was coming over for brunch just this past weekend and I didn't feel like I needed to pick up the house at all. I was like in pajamas when she came and I said, there's so few people, but like she, she's seen it all. Like I do not need to, you know, dress up and Mm -hmm. tidy up for her because they were in it with us. And it's like, we went through something so powerful together and nobody who wasn't here can really ever understand that. Well, it's the day to day ins and outs of just daily life that looks really messy because it's daily life mixed with giant poopy diapers and suction machine contents and it all the worst stuff. Right. And they see, I feel the same way. I had this one nurse and she, um, she was a loud, boisterous, like beautiful Italian woman. And she would come and I would uh, almost not immediately, but like I would sleep every time she would come and I wouldn't even mean to, but I would just get so t- sleepy because I trusted her so much. And I'd be like, this is my chance to rest. Cause I know you're not going to judge me because your life's also a mess. Like we're both hot messes. And so I know this is my nap time. And she, she'd be like, go lay down. I got the baby. I got Dominic and, you know, put, put a cartoon on or whatever for the baby. And yeah, it's like, 
if you're not in the day-to-day, it's different when you come visit. If you're not in the day-to-day for months and years, you just really don't know, you know, Um, there's just no way to make up for that, I guess. Right. One of the things that you uh, write a lot about is, well, grief, uh, which I appreciate very much. And one of the things I want to address is grief in the holidays. Mm-hmm. This is not something that I realized existed until I lost my own son and navigating getting through the happiest quote unquote time of the year when you really don't want to go to anything and you don't want to be happy and you don't want to wear your red sweater and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. How to like, and then I found myself doing a lot of like masking. You know, like, I'm not happy, but I'm pretending to be happy because everyone else needs me to be happy. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with grieving through holiday seasons? Absolutely. And, you know, it's I think that there's an added layer of complexity when you have other children, because if it's just you, you can really indulge yourself. And sometimes indulging yourself means I'm not celebrating the holiday. I'm staying in bed and watching, you know, Gossip Girls or whatever. But when you have other kids, you want to, quote unquote, give them a holiday. But Mm -hmm. you also want to take care of yourself. So it's so layered. Some of the things that I think about, for example, this year, we used to always host Thanksgiving. And we've had a lot of loss. And, uh, you know, of course, the central figure and the pinnacle loss and everything is my daughter but I've lost two siblings and my parents and my husband's parents. So, so it's like we used to have this huge Thanksgiving and we would bring tables and chairs up from the basement and I'd be cooking for like, well, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. My husband would be cooking. <laughs> He's the cook. You can the take mail. the credit here. <laughs> yeah, I'd be cooking. Um, and, you know, and I loved Thanksgiving. It was my favorite holiday because you just get to eat and like, there's no obligations. You're not going to synagogue. You're not buying presents. You're just with people and eating. Anyway, I really loved it. And what happened was, you know, slowly we stopped needing to bring up the extra table. And then, you know, we, things changed. And sometimes I felt like we're the incredible shrinking family, you know? Mm -hmm. And this year I just was like, I, we cannot, I can't do it. I can't see all of those empty seats at the table. You know, I just don't want to do it. So what we're doing, and, you know, I'll get back to you on whether or not this works, but for the first year ever, we're going away. And Mm -hmm. it's just for two nights. But I was like, I want to do something that's so different that it doesn't feel like everything's the same except, right? Right. So that's what we're going to try. But I think one of the things that I've talked to a lot of people about is this idea of changing the tradition in a big way. Because otherwise, if you're doing everything exactly the same, but there's one person missing, the presence of the absence is going to be overwhelming. If you do something that feels totally different, it might help you through. So that's, that's one thing. And I think, by the way, in my experience with other loss is as the years have gone on, I've been able to go back to some of those earlier traditions and found such joy and comfort and peace in them. And it's brought me loving memories where in the immediate years afterward, it really was too painful. So yeah. that's one thing. And that then I think a lot- starts to wear away a little bit. But before you yes. go on to your second thing, um, 
for Dominic's birthday this last year, we went away just as a little family. And, you know, like I said, we didn't travel much. We didn't go on vacations much, except for the one that my family went to, my extended family went to. Um, but we went away just for a couple of days and we used my mom's RV and we went camping for the first time and we floated the river in Texas. That's the thing you go and you float the Guadalupe river. And it was just like, this is a new thing where we don't have to be home and have everyone over for this party. That's not a birthday party, but it's kind of a birthday party. But then what do we do? Cause he's not here anymore. And he's just, you know, so it's such a, that's a beautiful thing. And it doesn't have to be a trip. If people can't, like I, I can't afford to go right. on a trip, that had to be a trip. Just, you can change it though. You have permission to do what yeah. you want to do. You don't have to stick in these things just because that's the way it's always been done. Yeah. And I think that's a huge thing, like giving yourself that permission and knowing like, it's okay. On Thanksgiving this year, we decided already we're having pizza and watching a movie. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. again, I'll get back to you because maybe we'll all be like, where's, you know, it doesn't work for us, but that's what we're going to, what we're going to try. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. And then what's the second thing you were you were oh, going to say? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, we were talking about over time the how the shape of the lost changes. I mean, it's always there, but I just think that the shape kind of morphs and sometimes it feels like it's, you know, really big and sometimes it contracts. But one thing that I think is really important when you're trying to support somebody is to remember that it's not just the first year that's tough for people. And sometimes in fact, it's more painful as the years go on because that first year, you expect it. You expect the pain. People kind of, you know, still rally around and be like, oh, I know this is the first Thanksgiving or, you know what, that kind of thing. But guess what? They're still gone on the second Thanksgiving and the third Thanksgiving. And it can really mean a lot. And I have a friend who has been so great about, since some of my earlier losses, remembering every year. And just, you know, checking in and saying, I'm thinking about you. That's such a mm -hmm. little thing, but it really means a lot. So as we were talking before about how to support people, I think that's a really, a really meaningful way to do it. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And um, also want to talk about like the siblings and your holiday traditions. So yeah, for us, we celebrate Christmas and every year we put stockings on the fireplace and it has, you know, everyone has their stocking. And that first year, I remember sitting staring at that box at all the stockings in it, like thinking, what do I do? Do I put his stocking up or do I not put his stocking up? And I decided to put his stocking up um, because I wanted him to be remembered and all the kids noticed, you know, and it was a good thing. But a lot of the things I let them kind of steer the, the way, how do you want to remember him? And um, one of the kids once said, I don't want everything to be about him. And I thought, I'm mm. so glad they said that because my inclination in my mind and everything's not about him right it's about everybody but this is so big in my heart and in yeah. my mind he's mixed in with everything you're celebrating a, a big accomplishment in my mind he's mixed into it because he's not here to, to to be with us with it um, and that really made me check myself and realize oh this is not just mine this belongs to all everybody this belongs to every you know all of you guys and so letting them kind of steer the bus so for like his, you know, we went out of town this birthday, but for other birthdays, like you guys choose what we do. You guys choose how much we acknowledge, how much we don't. You guys choose how often we go to the cemetery. I can go on my own anytime I want, which I actually don't really like to do, which I feel like I, I yeah. thought I would want to do that, but turns out I don't. Um, but if they don't want to go, 
we don't go like I don't make them go. And I think giving them yeah. that freedom to make those choices on their own because they don't have control of that whole life that he lived and the loss we had. They but they can have control going forward and how they want to keep some of these traditions in these days that we think are special. I love that so much. And I think it's so true that not only is it their loss too, but they might even have ideas that we didn't think of. And I remember actually it was when my so my when my other sister died, which was a few years ago, on the first birthday, um, that she, on her birthday, I was just it was just horrible. And my little guy said to me, "Let's have aren't we going to have a cake? Aren't we going to have a party and celebrate her?" And I was like. Yes, let's have a cake and celebrate her. It hadn't even occurred to me. I was like, it's her birthday. She's not here. She was so into her birthday. Like, this is just a horrible, horrible day. And it flipped everything. And it felt good, you know? And so now that's mm -hmm. what we do on people's on people's birthdays. And I loved that. And I don't know, he was like 12 when he came up with that. But it was so much smarter than anything I was thinking about doing. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I love the freedom of not having to stay in these social constructs that we've made for ourselves yes. or that society has made that this has to look like this. Like, no, it doesn't. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> you don't have to follow exactly. any rule, you know, unless you're following re religious rules that you want to follow, you know, but as far as all that stuff, do what you want. I think that's great. Do what you want. And that, how much freedom is there in that? My husband will say that a lot. He'll be, you know, I'll say something, he'll be like, you're entitled or like, we can do whatever we want. And I'm like, oh, I guess we can, okay. you know, I know, but do you find okay. that because for so long you couldn't do whatever you want and there were very clear black and white, if you do this, your daughter will, this will happen. You know, that's may, it may not be a good thing. It mm -hmm. might, might be detrimental. And so I kind of got stuck in this thinking of like, there is a right and there is a wrong. And if I mess it up, I'm going to mess everything up. And so it's hard to think outside of those lines. It's so hard. And I, you know, two things. Number one, it wasn't so much about there's a right and a wrong as it was about we are constantly vigilant. And every minute we had to be vigilant, even if I wasn't with her, like every minute was fight or flight, life or death, you know? And for me, that's been one of the hardest things is to be like, this isn't whatever the thing is. This isn't life or death, probably, right? This mm -hmm. isn't like you can you can kind of mess up. You can make mistakes because this isn't life and death because for so long it was. And I don't think we're supposed mm -hmm. to live like that in an ongoing way. You know, I mean, no. we think about fight or flight and it's like, okay, there's a bear, fight or flight, and now the bear's gone, right? Yeah. But our yeah. bear was there for eight years, you know? Right, right. So. No, that's, that's so true. And that hypervigilance, I, I mean, I, it's not as bad now, but I still experience it to a certain extent. Do you still have that? Totally. Totally. You're telling and yourself, I'm like, no one's going to die. Calm down. Yeah. It's just the chicken burnt. It's okay. It's just, we, can, right. we can make sandwiches. Sometimes, find that, sometimes I do find that I will take that out on my other kids and I try and be aware of it. You know, my, my youngest just got his driver's license and oh, he wanted to gosh. try to see Save some friends <laughs> coming in from out of town. And it was going to be a 45 minute drive on the highway and he hasn't done highway driving. And I was like, that's not happening. You know, and I think that 
maybe any parent might react that way. But my, I went so quickly from like, you can't do that. You know, that's not safe to like, that absolutely can't happen. You know, like everything becomes elevated and it feels Mm -hmm. like it's like we said, so such a huge thing. And we forget this is a normal parenting thing. Like any parent is going through that, but you forget that because everything has been so not normal for so long that the normal things don't even feel normal. Exactly. Yeah. You're like, not only are you not going, but you're never driving again. Give me your keys. (laughs) Just for asking. You're grounded for six months. No, it's true. You know, one of the things um, that surprised me, I, I don't know about you, but I planned my son's death from the beginning. I guess I'm morbid or whatever, but like I had to have a plan of like what was going to happen, what it was going to look like. And of course it didn't look anything like I thought it was going to look like. Um, But I always thought that after he died, I would become like this nervous wreck and in constant fear that my other kids were going to die. And it's actually been the opposite. I feel like it was this thought of him dying and have a, having a dead child was like this scary monster in the closet. You didn't know what it looked like. You didn't know the harm it was going to bring you, but you knew it was there and you knew it was going to get you eventually. And Mm. now it's almost like this monster's come out. I faced it. I met it and it didn't kill me. And so it's like, it's the, that fear of the unknown is gone. I've Mm. already been through the worst possible thing. Like Mm -hmm. bring it on. I'm not scared. I'm going to go let you live your life. And I I have to keep myself in check because I'm definitely can be hypervigilant sometimes, but I found it easier to keep myself in check than I thought I would. What's your experience been like for that? That's such a, a, such a good question. So we definitely did not plan Dahlia's death. I think for us from the start, the diagnosis was such a mystery. We didn't know what it meant. You know, nobody could tell us because here she was very severely impacted. They could tell how severely by the blood draw, right? So they knew that they in fact had to do the blood draw twice when they did the genetic testing because they said 100% of her blood is impacted. That's not possible. She wouldn't be alive. So they had to go back and do it again. And it was like 98%. Like we knew she was severely affected by it, but she was also running and jumping and talking and mainstreamed. And, you know, and we were like, what? So Mm -hmm. it was like, there was this dark cloud, you know, but we were still doing everything we would do underneath that dark cloud. And in fact, they couldn't tell us. They said, maybe they knew and they didn't want to tell us. I don't know. They said it's progressive, but they couldn't tell us how quickly it would progress. They didn't tell us what it would look like. You know, we pushed them. We were like, what what does that mean? And they said, well, you know, the fact that she has ataxia, that she has a, a problem with balance now that she's kind of stumbly she'll she'll be in a wheelchair but they couldn't tell us how long that was or you know the fact that she wears hearing aids that she will be deaf but again so it was it was how do you go about living your life and have this dark cloud and that was for the first four years from five which was diagnosis to nine and then it got bad over time you know at nine she became sick and she ended up in a three-month period getting a trach and a vent and a g-tube and the whole thing But it wasn't until the last two years that she was so severely impacted that she was frozen. She wasn't able to move at all. And so she couldn't blink. You know, we would need to tape her eyes shut at night so that her corneas didn't dry out. I mean, she was frozen, no movement, except the involuntary seizure movement. So, you know, 
I think that we were so in the intricacy of every minute that the big picture didn't really show up. You know, I think about the, those those paintings of, um, I, I don't know, pointillism or something it's called, where it's the little dots. And mm-hmm. if you're standing right up close, you can see the little dots. And if you go back, you see that it's actually like, you know, a canoe in the water. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those yeah, paintings yeah, I do. Kind I do. Of are- and I feel like we were always with our nose to the painting and we were looking at every little dot, you know, it was like, you know, what's our O2 right now? And that kind of thing. And so we didn't see the big picture. And I don't think we could because I think it would have just, it would have been too big for us to be able to fully acknowledge. So I don't think I, we kind of f- flashed forward. I think it was such a mystery. Actually, I shouldn't say we, I'll say I, because I think my husband and I did deal with it a little bit differently. And, you know, he may have seen things I didn't and vice versa. But I will say that I am you know, even though I said the thing about the car, I will say, I feel like I'm a more relaxed person now than I ever was in my whole life. And I think it's what you said, which is I've been hit with the worst of the worst. I've been hit with sudden death. I've been hit with long, excruciating, progressive illness that leads to death. I've seen all of this. So it takes more to ruffle my feathers, if you will, you know, and Mm -hmm. I used to, when I was younger, I was like, had more anxiety and and was more stressed. And it does seem a little bit backwards to feel like that's less so now, but. Well, because is. nothing seems quite as important, right? Like I recently yeah. got a right. really long, drawn out, nasty <laughs> response to something. And it made me laugh. Whereas before I would oh. have been upset about that for two weeks. Like someone's upset with me. And it just made me laugh because I'm like, right. you can't hurt me. Like you have no power. Yeah. The worst hurts already happened. You know, like it's cute yeah. to me that you think I care. Right. Because <laughs> I really don't. Yeah, there's I something. Love that. Like, oh, you're so cute. <laughs> like, oh, that's so cute. Look how much. And I actually was like, I actually yeah. felt bad. I was like, she probably put so much energy into this response. And I just don't care. Like, like I feel kind of bad about that. I wish I cared a little bit for you, but uh, um, one of the things that you've talked about that I love, that I would love to talk about is finding joy when someone can't eat because Mm. my, my son could never eat. So we did um, pleasure eating, which is basically you put some food in his mouth and he tastes it. And then um, he, he will, spit it back out and then you, you wipe it off. So he loved sweet potatoes and extremely dark chocolate, which is like, that's my thing. Oh and, my God. Uh, he did maple syrup. Did. Dahlia's was maple syrup. <laughs> and then the, the really salty pretzels. She could just, you know, we would just rub the pretzel on her tongue so she'd get the salt. Mm-hmm. She'd love it. That's my girl. That's my, like I could eat a whole bag of laced potato chips in one sitting, but give me a cupcake. I can't even finish it. We have the same palate. I mean, <laughs> um, but I think our culture evolves <laughs> so much around food, which is beautiful, right? In one way, until you think about the people that can't eat, but like being able to bring those people who aren't, who don't eat into this culture with food can be really challenging because all of our celebrations happen around food, right? So how did you guys navigate that 100%. when she became to a point where she wasn't able to eat? Yes. And so again, this was one for us that was like one day she was eating chicken nuggets and potato chips and, you know, able to eat everything. 
She got sick at nine. We were on vacation. We had landed in the hospital on vacation. Medijet, Medica Jet. I don't even know. Medical jetted back home, and wow. um, straight to the the ICU. And we were in the ICU for three months. So when we left the ICU, she could no longer eat. So it was going from you know eating everything to not being able to eat. And so we thought, okay, she can't eat. We're going to shield her from everything food related. Because of course, mm. why would we put her in front of food and, you know, she could see everybody else was able to, and she can't, that would be cruel is what we thought. Mm -hmm. So for a year during dinner time, my husband or I would be in another room with her. And then one of us would eat with the other kids. And one of us would be with Dahlia. And we would really try to just keep her away as though nobody was eating, right? Like we didn't want her to feel distressed by it. That mm -hmm. is totally backwards, ludicrous thinking that we had. Of course she was distressed by it. She couldn't eat. Like, you know, what were we thinking? Yeah. So what happened was, you know, about a year later, she ended up being removed from the public school system, which is a whole other episode because that was something we really, really fought to keep her in the public school system. And we lost. And um, she was sent to a school on a hospital campus, which is a miraculous, fabulous, wonderful school that I resisted with every fiber of my being. Mm -hmm. I didn't want her to be in that setting. So the first day of school, I get the schedule the night before and it says cooking. And I was like, <laughs> she can't go to cooking class. She can't eat. What are they thinking? This is cruel. This is horrible. Blah, blah, blah. This is you know, what I've I'm been freaking saying the whole out. Time. And I call yeah. my best friend. Yes. Meanwhile, they had this whole thing where they had like an oven and all the things that could lower to the level of kids in wheelchairs. And I mean, this was a school that specialized in these extremely complex needs with lots of kids in trachs and ventilators. So in any event, my husband and my friends were like, just give it one chance. Because I was ready to be like, you can't send her to cooking class, you know? Mm -hmm. So that day, at the end of the day, I connect with the teacher and I said, how, was, how did the day go? And she said, well, her favorite thing by far was cooking. And I was like, what? And then she was, oh, with the cookies, she was getting her hands in there and, you know, she loved it. And she came home from school and she had carefully wrapped in a paper towel a cookie for me, for my husband and for each of the two kids. And she, you know, gave it to each of us. And she was so proud and she watched with such, you know, joy as we were able to take this thing that she had prepared. So from then on, we started involving her. And again, we is a loose word because I don't do the cooking. We already established that. But my husband would cook with her and it became her favorite pastime. And this is what we would bake. We would cook because it was a way for her to engage with this thing that is so important in culture. And she wasn't eating it, but she was a part of it. And from that day on, we Every single solitary night, we had family dinner and we'd bring her even until the night before she died. We brought her to the table. No matter what the situation was, she was there at the table with us. She had her very own customized chef hat and apron. And that was her thing. She was, you know, we called it Dahlia's Kitchen and she became really a, an integral part. She had a spatula that she would use that when she was able to move, she would use as the as the baton to commence eating. You know, she became an integral part of mealtime. And it was so important. It was really such an important time for us, the nightly dinner, because it is when we all came together. 
And it was just such a learning for me about how we can inadvertently isolate people. We're trying so hard to protect. And what we end up doing is making them feel even more other. Mm -hmm. And so bringing her into the fold there and giving her this critical role really was a turning point for all of us. It's such a beautiful story and a beautiful way to look at everything. I don't know. It's, it's so important because it is such an innate part of the fabric of our culture, right? That like everything revolves around food. So if you're protecting her and shielding her from that, then she's just not a part of one of the most important times in a family, which is dinner. Right. Oh, and that she can then feel- Then she started to want to go out to dinner. I yeah, love that. Bet you want to go out to dinner now because we're like, all right. So we'd go to restaurants. Of course, we had to find a restaurant that was big enough for, you know, she had quite a big, the, the wheelchair was quite big because it had all the equipment on it. And, you know, she wanted to do it. So we did. We found the places and we would go and we would, again, just, she wanted to be out. She wanted to be, she didn't want to stay in her room all the time. You know, that was mm -hmm. like more quote unquote punishment instead of, I want to be out. I want to be in restaurants. I want to be... So we had to follow her lead. Well, and, and um, showing her that she's worthy to take up space and culture. J just last, in the past two days, I had Absolutely. two of my clients tell me stories where they were basically told in public by, by other people that they don't deserve to be there because they have a child with a disability. And it, it just, and both times I said, you <laughs> are worthy. Your family is worthy to take up space. Your child is worthy to be there like any other child. And, you know, like they both have children who are young. And I was like, this is your heart's going to have to get a little bit hard. And you're going to have to, you know, come up with like a, a script so you know what to say and how to respond. Because it's so shocking when it first happens. Yeah. Like you can't bring this giant wheelchair in that. Yeah. And then later you're going to distract all of our other guests, you know, and I would get to a point, I have to be careful because I'm very combative sometimes where I'm like, oh, I'm suctioning him right here in this restaurant because like anybody else, he deserves this. Uh, I would have to kind of check myself, but I'm like, he deserves to be here like everybody else. So going to those restaurants and finding those places mm -hmm. and yeah, she deserves to be out and, and to participate like the rest of society. I think more people yeah. should, should do that. One of the things that we talked about before we started recording is how we handled the death of our children, uh, maybe a little bit differently. So for me, um, so my son died, my little son was starting kindergarten at that time. And then he ended up having to be having to come home. We, we, uh, okay. So I'll tell you, my parents are from new Orleans came from difficult situations. Right. So my dad would always joke. He was an extremely successful businessman. He passed away a couple of years ago but he was an extremely successful businessman. And he would, he would always joke that he was a high school dropout. And so when my little son had to come out of school, he'd be like, Oh yeah, me and you we're school dropouts. Um, so we, we lovingly say that <laughs> not in a derogatory way, but he came home for a little bit and then I was pretty debilitated. And then when he went back to school after all the therapies and all the stuff, I had my like queso and twilight years where I basically just, I couldn't function. So I would order queso from Torchy's Tacos and I would lay on my couch and watch ridiculous teenage TV shows because I couldn't handle things that were too difficult for my brain. And meanwhile, I have this friend who has a playground named after her kid 
Her kid died after my kid. She already has a playground. She's got a library named after him. She's got rocks all over the country on hiking trails with QR code that people can learn about them. And I'm just over here, like, not even putting a bra on watching oh Twilight over and over. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how did you deal with, uh, how did you deal with that? That um, Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's such a good point because what we don't realize sometimes is the person with the QR code on the hiking trail, which by the way, I've never heard of anything like that. That is really good. Yeah. Um, that they're coping too. Like sometimes I think we look at somebody else and we're like, well, they, they've moved on or they're doing so great, you know? And that's crazy talk because everybody is coping in their own way. And some people it's going to be inward. They need to turn in and just tend to themselves quietly. And some people cope by being vocal or throwing an event or giving money to research or, you know, doing a playground, whatever it is, we're all coping in our own way. And I think we need to be able to give ourselves, as we were talking about earlier, permission and grace to be like, I can do this however I want to and need to. And by the way, it's okay if it changes. I might feel one way on Saturday and a different way on Sunday, and that's okay. For me, I think that what happened was for the last couple of years of Dahlia's life, I was doing a lot of writing. Dahlia was spending more and more time in bed. And I was, um, you know, as we were talking about quite a bit, she was an eyes on patient during COVID. We had much less nursing. I spent a lot of time in the chair by her bed. She'd be sleeping. I was writing. And in fact, I wrote my book at that time. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't as though, you know, the, the book happened afterward. It was, I was already in the process of, I already had an agent. I was already shopping the book around. Now, of course, I ended up having to add an epilogue. <laughs> the ending of the book was different than I had originally intended. But for me, um, having that kind of creative outlet to pour myself into was incredibly important. And then also at the time, well, she died in uh, March and in January, so almost a year, but I've been thinking about it for some time. I launched my podcast and my podcast is I Don't Know How You Do It. Um, and I talked to people, you know, like you, I'm sure every single day people would say, I don't know how you do it. And mm -hmm. I was, and of course, when you're on the receiving end of that, you're like, what do you mean? It's my kid. Like, what else am I going to do? You know, but I started to think a lot about why do people say that not only to parents of medically complex children, but why do people say that to other people? What is it about some people's lives that seems so unimaginable and how do people do it? And, and what tools and insights for, do we have for people who are living these lives that seem so unimaginable? So I think the idea of the writing I was doing, the launching of the podcast, all of that has been a bomb for me. And part of it is meeting people, you know, like I'm loving talking to you and we wouldn't have met otherwise. So mm -hmm. I think talking to so many people who have had these different, but yet relatable stories and situations and experiences um, has been has been a great outlet for me. Now for my husband, it's just been about the dahlias, just been about growing dahlias and nourishing these flowers. And that's great. He would never in a million years want to have a conversation like we're having now. Never. So, okay. You know, I think for each person, it's just, re it looks really different. 
Yeah, and having the freedom to know that there's no right way to grieve, whether you're eating queso for a full year and gain 20 pounds, not saying I gained 20 pounds, but maybe, um, (laughs) or or you're working on your book. It is funny, though, about the entertainment and what, you know, because I definitely do feel like I need to, like, I don't want to watch any (laughs) entertainment where, and for a long time, it was like, if there's a sick kid, I'm not watching. But I also didn't want to watch where there was like the happy, healthy kid, right? Like I was like, I just don't want any of it. So then I find entertainment that's like, you know, so totally different. Like I'm watching Breaking Bad now and it's the best thing ever because there's nothing I can relate to or, you know, be wishful thinking about in Breaking Bad. It's just pure entertainment. And I do think that we kind of find these things that we can just get immersed in that are going to work for us, whether that's, you know, the Hunger Games or Breaking Bad or whatever it is, but don't, I'm not watching ordinary people put it that way. (laughs) Well, I think that's, that was the um, intrigue of like Twilight because this is, it's so ridiculous. It could never happen. Right. Teenage vampires. And then I was thinking like, I'm in my forties watching (laughs) these teenager vampires, like which, what kind of woman in her forties does this? And I was like, well, probably a lot of us. That's why it's so popular. First of all. And second of all, This can't, this is nowhere near reality and I can't be in reality right now. And I'm not going out and doing drugs and getting a boyfriend and leaving my family. This is the worst thing I'm doing. And this is what I have to do. And so I just took the guilt away from it. I'm like, I'm in my twilight era. That's the worst thing you're doing. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. (laughs) We're in our teenage era. Uh, They didn't have all that when we were teenagers. So we (laughs) had to catch up. Um, So yeah. The, I think that your writing and your podcast and this movement that's kind of seems to be happening uh, of people getting out there and sharing their voices and showing that each human has dignity, right? Your daughter has dignity because she exists, period. There's no because or buts or ands, period, right? And right. my son has dignity and us getting out there and just letting people know and also people don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They feel awkward too. So letting people know, like, this is what you do. This is what you say. And it's okay to feel awkward. Everyone feels awkward at first and that's okay. You know, but I think it's so important. And I think that's I think- so important. Not only. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think it's so important, not only in grief, but also when you encounter disability. And I know I was so uncomfortable when I was younger because I didn't have experience. And I know I probably said things that you know, didn't land right. And I probably looked longer than was polite. And so I do think that this education about, so what do we do? What can we do when we find ourselves in situations that we're not accustomed to, or that make us uncomfortable? I think, you know, educating ourselves goes a really long way. Absolutely. And I think being medical parents, so this is the thing I've said to my two clients these past two days that have told me they've been, one was told to leave a movie theater. um, And another was basically just had a really nasty comment. And um, one of the things I said, I said, well, like it or not, you're now an educator. And I think embracing that role Mm -hmm. as a medical parent that you may not like to have this and maybe not every time you go out, nobody wants to do that all the time, but it's either you're going to be an educator and allow people to learn, or you're going to perpetuate what's already happening. And perpetuate this feeling of Mm -hmm. people not knowing what to do in this uncomfortable situation. And so I think if medical parents can embrace this role as best as you can and invite people in to learn, then it's going to help our society as a whole. 
Absolutely. Well, everybody, I want everyone to go. I'm going to put all the links for all of your stuff on the show notes. So please go look at that. I want everyone to buy your book when it comes out in 2024. Um, Well, I will tell you, you can pre-order it now. So if you'd like to go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble, bookshop.org, breathtaking two words by Jessica Fine. And, you know, pre-ordering is like a great way to help authors because those pre-orders matter. All right. Well, I want everybody in my audience to pre-order. And then I'm going to link also your article um, in, was it Psychology Today? about grieving in the yes, holidays? Yes, my Psychology Today blog is called Grace and Grief. And so you can find a lot of writing on the topic there. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us. And this was the most enjoyable conversation and so relatable. And I am going to come one day to Boston to meet you. Excellent. I will look forward to it. Thanks so much for All having right. me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Complex Conversations. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please share this episode and the show itself with your friends who you feel like could benefit from it. And please hit that subscribe or follow button. That'll really help us out. Head on over to bluebeecollective.com to learn all about the brand new Bluebee community. This is a community where we're going to be bringing together parents and caregivers of medically complex children with complex care providers. The goal is to build up an empowered and fierce complex community to help you live your very best life. Thanks again for listening, and remember, you're doing great.